we have had to be more in tune to what students need and their learning styles and what works and what doesn't. And if we can really analyze that um, and take the very, very best of what we've done with what we used to do and put those things together, oh, I mean, I think it would be a really remarkable sort of legacy of something that has been really challenging. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. In today's conversation, we'll explore how COVID-19 is impacting our universities. We'll speak with Dr. Carrie Hauser, who has served as president and CEO of Colorado Mountain College, a public degree granting institution with 11 campuses serving 20,000 students in the central Rocky Mountains. Hauser has held leadership roles at the American Council on Education Board of Directors, Kaufman Foundation, the Metropolitan State University of Denver, and the Daniels Fund. While at Daniels, she was a loaned executive advising Denver's mayor on a citywide college scholarship program and assisting the Metro Denver Sports Commission on an initiative to attract top-tier sporting events, including the Olympic Games. An outdoors woman and athlete, Hauser has summited Mount Kilimanjaro and climbed to the Everest Base Camp. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to our weekly No Barriers podcast series, where we continue to explore this extraordinary moment in our lives while remaining true to the theme that we've always focused on, which is what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. Special thanks to Prudential and Wells Fargo for their generous support of this podcast series. Uh, um, first of all, I guess, can I call you Carrie or do I need to call yeah, you Dr. Really. If you talk to me anything else, I'll think you're... I don't know who you're talking if, to. If I call you doctor, you have to call me doctor, though. You've got it. And because both of us will a, be doctors that can do you no good whatsoever. You have a real doctorate. <laughs> I have a fake I have fake doctorates. You have, an, you have honorary doctorate. Honorary doctorate. Yes. Thank you. That's much better than fake doctorates. <laughs> uh, uh, but, yeah, you were very nice at Colorado Mountain College to honor me with that. So, thank you. And, uh, yeah, but Carrie and I, we've, uh, we have a long history. I first met her husband, Jeff. And we climb Kilimanjaro together. And so we've been friends for a long time and uh, run marathons and things together and then got to know Carrie. Then you became the president of Colorado Mountain College. We've skied together. We've climbed a beautiful peak in Colorado, Mount Sopras together. So it's been really great getting to know you and you're an outstanding leader. So we thought this is a, a podcast where we really like to dive in and dissect leadership and the struggles that people have had. And, and you as the president of the CMC, have such a unique role. And maybe I'll just start there. The CMC has a really unique mission and charter than a lot of the schools I've visited. Can you explain that to folks? Sure. Yeah, I think that's pretty relevant. Um, so Colorado Mount Mountain College is a relatively young institution. We're about 55 years old, 55 years young, whichever way you put it. 
and uh, you know call it 60 years ago there were a group of small you know some ranchers and others in these mountain towns that sort of said to themselves hey you know why don't we start a college because if we don't do it ourselves there will not be post-secondary opportunities in these mountain communities our residents are going to have to you know travel to boulder or fort collins or someplace else so a uh, guy by the name of David Delaplane, who's still alive and well today, he's 90, I think he's approaching 93 in September. He was a part-time manager at the Glenwood Springs Chamber of Commerce. He was a local minister. He caught wind of this idea and said, well, let's make it happen. And so over the course of um, several years, they beat the bushes. There was no I-70 or cell phones or broadband or anything at the time. And they made their way around these mountain communities and essentially, long story short, created a taxing district to pay for it. And over time, over those next 50 plus years, you know, we've had campuses, you know, spring up in every, pretty much every one of these small mountain ski towns in uh, the central mountains of Colorado. It's a really remarkable story uh, because our communities invest in us and our job is to make sure that we deliver back to those communities. So it won't surprise you that our programs are really baked into these mountain communities. You know, we do things that no other institution in the country does. We have a ski and snowboard design program. We have a ski area operations program. We have an av the only avalanche science program in the country. And, of course, we train all the teachers and the nurses um, and the EMTs and business leaders and people that make these mountain communities run. Our role in these communities, given what's happening in our world, both with the pandemic and the social unrest, it has just underscored our, our vision and mission. We're really, really proud about what we do. I was thinking about the CMC. It just seems like an incredibly diverse community, right? So you have the ranchers, the more conservative folks, the more liberal folks, the economic, uh, the political differences, the ethnic differences. How the heck do you bring that all together into one community? And maybe you have some insights for folks, you know, in terms of the you know, what's happening around the country. As we see sort of the civil unrest, I think what we're seeing is, you know, I kind of see that we're dealing with two pandemics in some ways. We're dealing with a public health pandemic and we're dealing with uh, what I would call a pandemic that sits under the surface a lot of the time. And that is systemic inequity. That is health disparities. That are all the things that are sort of coming up to the surface right now and what we're seeing play out in our communities, in our cities, um, in our urban centers um, across the country. So the more that we can facilitate a dialogue and the more that everyone knows, regardless of their religious background, their political affiliation, you know, what they do for a living. And, and these mountain towns run from very extreme red to very extreme blue and everything in between. It's kind of who we are. And so at our core, we're a bit of everything. And therefore, we try to make sure that everyone um, is welcome. And we have those dialogues and we open up discussions for all types of viewpoints. Um, and we make sure that, you know, we're a place just as when we were founded, that is an open door and that no one is excluded. And so we're doubling down on that again. I mean, that is where we feel like we can um, activate I'm toggling a little bit, Eric, between some of the topics, but, you know, in response to COVID, we said, what can we do as an institution? What can we do to, 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 to bolster these communities where people are leaving? 
And so we said, how can we keep people here? All these lift ops and restaurant workers and hospitality and seasonal folks and everybody, how can we keep them here, keep them engaged, keep them to connect it to something that's meaningful? So we essentially said, no cost for summer enrollment. You can come for no cost. We call it CMC Responds. You can find information about that. We can certainly post the link. And we said, if you're one of our local students from one of our local communities, if you were a student with us in the spring and your life was disrupted by COVID, obviously, we had to go in completely to an online virtual framework. If you are anywhere in our sort of in-district or if you were disrupted, if you were disrupted in your work and found yourself out of work, you can come to the college at no cost. Clearly, we're all online right now for the summer, but we're up 66%. And most of those are our local students. Most of them are taking more classes. We've essentially said, okay, you're out of work. We can connect you to financial aid resources. We can connect you to other things that can keep you here. And once the economy comes back, you will be better skilled. You'll go back to a job with, you know, with, you know, more to offer, you know, if we can be helpful and it's a place where anybody has access to improve their lives, their training, whatever it is, hopefully we're an antidote to what is happening uh, on a more global stage. Well, Carrie, in addition to being the president of CMC, you sit on the board of the directors of the American Council on Education. And so tell us a little bit about how you see college changing, perhaps forever, as a result of what, what's happening right now with COVID. There are going to be institutions that will not survive this. And there were already that was already the case across the country because we have fewer high school graduates just demographically, that is um, something that we're seeing over the next decade or two. So that traditional college-going student, which is really not traditional anymore, I would say, that's really a very, very small minority of who goes to college in this country. But the notion of college still often our default is tree-lined campuses. I go to an institution. I live in a residence hall. I'm in a fraternity and sorority. And I'll tell you, that's probably one in six, one in seven, maybe one in eight um, of, of a student that experiences that kind of a college experience anymore. More often they're adults, they have their own children, they're coming back for retraining, they're students of color, they're first generation. That's the demographic that's in the pipeline that are that become college students in whatever way, shape, or form that takes. And so to me, what changes higher education is this is sort of the big disruptor, just like it is for anything else. Airline travel, major big events, you know, all the things that are really, you know, the model is built on something that that may not survive COVID-19 or our behaviors will change so drastically that those models will be so dated that they really won't be relevant anymore. So I anticipate one person's view, certainly not the college's position, but certainly my view that that higher education will change really dramatically. And particularly for I would call smaller liberal arts, private institutions, lots of them sprinkled around the Midwest, those that are built on a, a model that's, you know, was already becoming dated. This is really going to be sort of a kickstart to something that's going to be very different. So I'm hopeful that institutions that are really responsive to and guide their decisions by what is good for students. You know, people ask me what keeps you up at night right now, given this environment. And what keeps me up most is students that are at the greatest risk of having to drop out or leaving um, who just finally got a bite into being a college student and and we're we're not erasing but we're making progress around achievement gaps 
and we're making some equity gains, one of my greatest concerns is we're going to slide back really drastically. And the students who've always been at risk and we've been trying to get in the door and we've been trying to get them to our institutions and trying to get them to graduation, they're going to be the ones that are going to um, suffer the most in this. And so um, I'm hopeful that that's something that doesn't go by the wayside. Because they're already isolated anyway, right? Like well, more isolated maybe, um, sure. more fragmented, you know what I mean? So they're at greater risk. I remember my friend starting his daughter on on uh, online education. He's like, we don't even own a computer because, you know, he's economically challenged guy. And uh, so well, you, have lang- you have language barriers, you have ADA. But I sit there and I think about somebody that um, has, uh, you know, he- is hearing impaired, but really needs the benefit of somebody's mouth and those facial expressions and, you know, language. And we have so many, you know, English second language um, students and families. And we have, again, back to one of your earlier questions, Eric, we have many of our students and families that go home to pretty dense family situations and, um, or they travel a great distances to, to get to work and, or they're on a bus or they re- rely on, you know, public transit and that doesn't enable a social distancing situation. So yeah, it's, it's every layer of the onion you peel back, there's more to it. Uh, and, Uh, the more conscious we can be about who will suffer the most, really important. Do you think that like some things will last maybe a lot longer? Like for instance, you know how like, uh, you know, it seems like companies keep merging and getting bigger and is is education, I wonder, going to do something similar? I will say that COVID-19 did so far more than anything else. We all had to go online in a matter of about two weeks. I mean, every single one of us, I mean, you know, as far as I know, uh, unless unless you're CSU Global or or others that are designed that way, I mean, we all change dramatically. And you know, here's a 200 plus year sort of traditional Titanic that moved on a dime. We all did, and we had to. Now, the things you know, obviously, you know, Eric, you have a college age daughter, you have a son coming up that's you know, probably contemplating some of these things. And, you know, yes, I think some of that's going to change. At least for the next year, there are no 400-person re- lecture halls. You're not packing people in in a personalized way. No way. I mean, that's just not going to happen until we know that that can be a safe environment again. And will that ever come back entirely? I don't know. I mean, uh, time will tell. Hopefully, we put ourselves in a position to be much more flexible. And if that works, to my, some of my earlier comments, and it doesn't leave students behind. Your comment, Eric, about somebody that didn't have a computer. I mean, we're standing up hotspots in parking lots of our, you know of our campuses. Local school districts are having to do the same thing because they've got kids that need to come and sit in a parking lot in a car to access the internet so that they can use their you know Chromebook that the school gave them. I mean, there's one hurdle after the next. You feel like you've solved a challenge, and then you've got another kind of layer of of, of problems, you know, that come behind it. It also really exposes other access inequities. I mean, these rural mountain towns don't have the same kind of broadband access. We don't have the same bandwidth. You know, the big technology companies recognize there's just not the density in these locations. And so we haven't been a priority. So in many cases, in our case, the college, we've had to sort of do it ourselves uh, and make some of this stuff available. And so hopefully some of those things withstand all of this, a more personalized touch perhaps, We've had faculty say, I've actually connected better with some of my students in an online platform than I did in the class. I don't know that that that's for all students, but it does, I think, signal to us that we have had to be more in tune 
to what students need and their learning styles and what works and what doesn't. And if we can really analyze that um, and take the very, very best of what we've done with what we used to do and put those things together, oh, I mean, I think it would be a really remarkable sort of legacy of something that has been really challenging. And everyone's scrambling to learn this stuff, as you said, like on a dime, right? Yep. Like I heard this doctor talking about COVID and he's like, last week we learned that it may not be a lung disease. It may be a hemoglobin disease. And I'm like, last week, these are like things that are usually learned, you know, in decades right. and now we're learning things. You know, yesterday we learned <laughs> and it's right. some massive learning that, <laughs> I mean, so, so what's that process been like? Well, you know, um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of the adage of don't let any crisis go to waste. I mean, <laughs> at the very core of everything we do, regardless of the position that somebody holds, at least at my institution, they all recognize we had to get students to the finish line and we had to do it somehow, some way. And it was really about the students. And so the faculty member and all of our support staff and everyone else said, what is it that we have to do to make sure the student finishes the semester? We can breathe a smidge, right? In the summer, we can take a slight inhale in the summer and sort of plan for fall and the rest of the sort of the rest of the academic year. But we had to do that. You know, I think the other thing, just as I say that, this whole thing calls into the question the semesters and very long time sort of notions of structure. And how do we break down some of those barriers? I mean, students and people aren't necessarily aligned with a quote fall semester, spring semester. I mean, our world doesn't work that way anymore, particularly given that you can find access, you find an access information anytime. So the other things that we're talking about is how do we be more flexible? How do you have shorter courses? How do you make sure that students that come in with some sort of skill set, whether they're military or they've worked a job or they've got, you know, things that they come in with, how can we actually credential those? And how can we evaluate those in ways that Students have to, don't have to do them over, but they also bring skill sets with them that m really add value to the classroom. So those are all the things I think that get exposed in these kind of situations, right? You're not in your normal routine where you get up every day and have your cereal and you go to office and all this kind of stuff. The whole thing was like thrown up into the air. So everything's open, you know, season. We can change things and um, it's our opportunity to come back and I hope not slide back into some of the old habits that we're sim we simply did just because we did them. That's fascinating. So what I'm hearing you saying is like, this is a, if, if things are exploding, hey, let's like uh, make it an explosion where we get rid of the things that weren't working maybe before. Correct. Wow. Absolutely. Carrie, you, uh, I, when I went up to visit the campuses and speak, um, I was really, I don't throw this word out that often, but I mean, it was really quite inspiring to see the students, no barrier stories. You know, like I have a friend up there was, uh, we have a mutual friend. She's got cerebral palsy and, you know, CMC was a lifesaver to her. Those uh, mountain towns, I, I don't want to overly generalize, but they, you know, they can be at pretty isolated places, right? You know, for somebody who, with a disability. Uh, I met people where they told me, sorry, shameless promotion, but they're reading my book and it was the first book they read in English and I, I just was blown away by the students. Are there any no barrier stories that inspire you that, you know, you don't have to say names or anything, but just sort of like the, the stories that, that, that give you energy? You know, as a group, just off the top of my head, I would say our DACA students, you know, we've stood up a special program called Fun Sueños, which 
translates to the Dream Fund that supports our DACA students. But I, I just think right now, Eric, about not only are we in the midst of a pandemic, not only are we in the midst of sort of this social unrest, you know, here we have our immigrant populations not knowing where where they're going to be um, and sort of under siege. And, you know, you said it earlier, they're the backbone of these mountain communities. They make sure that our hotels are clean so that guests from out of state and out of country can come visit here. And, you know, we've done everything we can and feel a little helpless. Um, and the stories I hear from our, our DACA students are the epitome of breaking through barriers. They're doing it in ways to protect their families who may not be documented in any way and are sort of in the shadows of our communities. And, you know, what they do to, to make sure that their families, their younger siblings, you know, their sort of network of support um, are really, really phenomenal. Many are supporting their families in, in other places um, around the world. We started with the notion that CMC is an open door for everyone. And we are trying to make sure that that happens. And it is um, this particular group, there are obstacles that are um, so great. They may not be physical. They may not be some of the ones that I think we maybe traditionally describe in your work, Eric, um, but they are nonetheless, they are very, very, they're substantial. I love that idea of just pulling people out of the shadows and, uh, you know, and the fact that, you know, I'd never thought about that before. The idea that they're going through school with this massive uncertainty on their heads every moment. Mm -hmm. As are their families. Yep. As are their families. Yep. Uh, we interviewed a lady, uh, a woman yesterday. She's deaf and blind and she's from originally from Eritrea and she is the first deaf blind uh, person to graduate from Harvard Law School. I definitely felt out of my league. She's incredibly <laughs> intelligent. And she said fighting for inclusiveness is like not just fighting for your own situation, not for your own belief. It's fighting for everyone. And Absolutely. I thought that was so powerful. That's kind of what you just, I think I heard you just say, like you got to fight for everyone, for all the different backgrounds and economic and political and uh, all, you know, people's different diversity, which is strength. And we got to fight for it all, not just, you know, our own deal. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us and to our listeners for all, anything you heard during this conversation where we referenced some outside source. You can always go to our show notes at nobearspodcast.com to find additional information. Uh, Carrie, thanks so much. We really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, Eric, uh, what did you hear from today's conversation that stood out for you? I was just fascinated to be listening to uh, a no barrier story, all in the perspective and context of a, of a college. Uh, and, and, you know, what are leaders from different kinds of in institutions doing, right, to scramble? So, yeah, I think uh, I just, you know, the, the takeaway for me is how adaptable everybody is being at this point. Yeah. And for me, the this idea I've been hearing from a lot of the businesses that work with No Barriers that they're rethinking um, a lot of the policies and principles they used to have in place for the past 20 years just around how how much each employee travels and how much they all you know spend time getting together. And really what I heard from Carrie that was most interesting to me is what are they taking away that they're doing differently now that may actually be better than what they'd ever done before, uh, because I think some of what COVID is forcing us to do is 
question our assumptions about things we used to do and whether they were the right way to do them to begin the best way to do it to begin with. And I think she kind of talked about that at the college and they're really questioning whether some of the things they used to do are the best way to do it to begin with. And I think a lot of our business leaders are, are going through that same process. Yeah. I mean, and you know, when I went up there to the CMC and spoke um, there, there, you know, she was, Carrie was talking about DACA students and yeah, it was so inspiring to see. I mean, I, I, I hate to be like giving out cliches, but it, it, it was, it is the American dream sort of happening right before your eyes or your ears um, with all these groups of people um, learning, getting a college education uh, to move up into the world and get out of the shadows. It's, it's a very no barrier story. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening today to the conversation. You can learn more about No Bearers and our work, participate in the No Bearers Summit, or join it after the fact and watch the recorded sessions. Uh, go to learn more at nobearersusa.org. Thanks so much, Eric. Cool. No barriers. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, executive producer Diedrich Jonk, Sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Cotman. Graphics by Sam Davis. And marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com.